Welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. Over there is Matt Kirshen. Hey, Andy. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for remembering. <laughs> How was work? It was fun. It was, uh, you know, Wednesday's always a weird day because we tape on Tuesday and then Wednesday's the what the hell are we going to do next week day. Right. So, I don't know yet. <laughs> I know some of what we're going to do next next week, but some I don't know. I just heard the news about at midnight. That's crazy. Yeah. Bummer for our friends who work there. R.I.P. Um, at midnight. Friends of the show. People, guess, past guests of the show, a plenty work on that show. Or have been guests on, yeah. Uh, Including you You won on I, your lone I did. appearance. You I, it does mean say that forever now. It does mean I have a, an unblemished record of at midnight. <laughs> Never been defeated. That and a thousand for at midnight. Uh, yeah, that's actually... Well, it's, it's a shame, but also it did run for... 600 episodes. 600 episodes, four years. That's a pretty hefty number of shows, and yeah. so well done all of those guys, and they got a lot of my friends both working behind the scenes and on screen, so mm-hmm. good for them, and good for whatever comes to replace it, and I think Chris Hardwick, past guest of the show as well, Chris Hardwick, oh, is yeah. he's probably going to land on his feet. I think he'll do okay. I think, I think he'll get by. I, I think forgot. we did have him on. It's probably been four years now. It has been a while since Chris Hardwick was on the show, but listen back to that episode. That was one of our first, that was one of our first big fish. Yeah, don't forget, you can go back through the entire back catalog either by scrolling page after page through our web, Squarespace-powered website, probablyscience.com, or uh, they all should be available in iTunes. If you ever have any problems finding back episodes um, through whatever you listen to, let us know and we'll try to fix that. And speaking of back episodes and going back, our guest today is one of the first people I met in America. It's Mr. Jim Hegarty. Ah. That's very true. He, uh, I, I met uh, Matt. He was doing Last Comic Standing. Uh, and that I was like 10 was, years ago. Yeah, I was one of the uh, talent wranglers on the show. It was like you're one of your oh, first shit. TV jobs, right? Yeah, very I, funny comedian, I should point out. Yeah. Fine, <laughs> fine comic in his own right, not just, I, not just uh, someone who was working as a... PA on a show ten years ago. Yeah, it was uh, it was about ten years ago, and I uh, that was I think my third or fourth job in Los Angeles. Wow. I'd been here maybe not even a year. Yeah, so yeah, it's been a long time. Wait, in a year you had three or four jobs? Uh, yeah, because some of the a lot of the stuff I worked on um, in the first year, or first four or five years was um, reality show stuff, which would only really shoot. It have a window of shooting, which was like seven weeks eight weeks and so you would you would basically finish up on a show my first show was top chef the second show i went on to was a show called bad girls club which was horrible and then after that i think yeah because it's all full of bad girls like if they they just set out to make good girls and put them in a club it would have been a much more enjoyable show probably oh yeah yeah no they were terrible people (laughs) (laughs) it was also a bad work experience i think my third day on that show like one of the girls got really drunk and then pushed one of the other girls into the pool and they tried to fight each other, and then that girl passed out, and they were like, Jim, go make sure she doesn't punch anyone else. And I was like, but it's my third day. Like, it's the whole thing. Why won't these bad girls behave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, that, was that when the writer's strike was happening? Is that why there was so much more reality? Yeah, it was right around that time. Like, I, I think I was only here, I what, 2006 I moved here? So it's 2007, Seven 2008. Was, was, yeah. So, like, it was... The, the peak of reality and then the writer's strike happened and it was like a whole thing where like 
by the time I actually got a job outside of reality, I was like, finally. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the thing is, if you're going to strike, you better make sure there isn't a trend right now for a genre of television that doesn't require you. Such yeah, and as there's reality TV. Yeah, uh, but there's I, I actually there's a ton of people I met working in reality who are like really nice and really talented people. Like all the Top Chef people were really great. Um, and last Comic Standing, I met. Uh, a ton of people doing that which are i mean deborah di giovanni was uh that was her first not her first time in america but like i met her there it was yeah. even before i started doing stand-up so it was really interesting i'm like oh i see you guys i didn't know time. i thought you were like a sort of open micing around that time but you hadn't even I done hadn't, stand-up at no all. I, I think it was oh. like still another year or so before i did stand-up for the first time cool at least out here yeah deborah's great she's like she's in la now for a lot of the time yeah super funny out. Mm-hmm. So um, we always ask this of our guests before we get into any stories. What, if anything, is your background in science, Jim? Uh, I really—it's weird to say. But like, I really like science. I just never was kind of actively pushed into that side of stuff. Like, it was uh, when I was in high school. I always liked uh, sort of uh, building things and elect- electronics and all those. That sort of end of it. Uh, it what ended up happening was I, got, I chose a degree which is called Crime Law and Justice at Penn State, which it didn't require any science. Like, uh-huh. it really. They were like, just take this science class. And like the first day of, of class, it was like rudiments of physics or whatever. So it was like okay. a thing where they were like, they were like, this is gravity. And they dropped their pen on the table. Oh my God. And you're just like, okay, so we're not going to push each other today, are we? <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty rough. Um, but in all, like, it's, it's kind of weird. Like I've, I've always been science minded. I've just never, I've never had one of those jobs where I'm just sort of like rattling off. Uh, formulas and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if those jobs exist, so it's okay that you don't have one of those. So, so crime law and justice. Yeah, it is. Uh, it was weird. It, most people, they just want to say criminal justice because uh, that's just a degree that people can get like at ITT Tech and stuff. Um, oh. So it's one of those things where uh, it was more the administration of justice. It was like the the court system part of it was like everyone was like why didn't you become a cop i'm like well first of all being a cop sounds like it sucks yeah, yeah. and second secondly of all, you don't need a degree from penn state to yeah. become a cop i was like every time like a cop's job is to go and deal with everyone's terrible day and that doesn't seem like a great job to have yeah as, um, D- as dick wolf taught us there are two sides to the yeah. uh, criminal justice system yeah <laughs> at the end of it at the end of my day it probably wouldn't have been like dun dun like it was just like oh <laughs> i'm depressed yeah <laughs> So then what, what, when you got into it, you thought your future was going to be what? Uh, I was planning on going to law school. Uh, what happened was I got kind of towards the end of my degree. I was very close to completing it. And all the lawyers I encountered in kind of my extended kind of uh, academic world uh, were miserable and they were all like a Harry Chapin song where they like didn't know their families <laughs> they were all miserable they're like I missed out on everything and I was like maybe I don't want to do that so I yeah, just I kind of maybe I want to separate some bad girls one of whom is wet and the other one is fighting. I gotta say, I, I, I worked at a mutual fund company for a couple years after college and then I moved out to California and then like I had the job on Top Chef and then like the first time I had that thought of like this was the biggest mistake to move to California was when I was up at like four o'clock in the morning with this group of the Bad Girls Club uh, just at a at a, a club, like at a club at like four in the like, real late at night where it was like basically the place was closed down I was like 
I don't. I have a college degree. How do I explain this to yeah. my college degree? Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I was just writing jokes today about Nicki Minaj's Anaconda video. I'm like, wait, I have an electrical engineering degree. How did this happen? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> but I like this. I chose this life. I have to remind myself this is what I chose. There's times as an adult, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I don't have kids. I wouldn't want to explain this to them. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Okay. Before we get into the stories, I do want to, so talk us through what an episode or at least the structure of bad girls club as a tv show oh it's it was exactly like real world it was it was the same company that made real world they just okay. instead of ch- getting a co-ed it's group like boona murray yeah boona murray sure. yeah it was um, they, they were, that was that was one of the first uh was that the first reality show it wasn't uh, the first but it was one of the first they were one yeah that company was uh pioneers i guess sure. technically fits yeah. the definition but uh yeah it was uh we were they were they were parked the houses up on skyline drive it was just they put them in a house and they they neglected to give them a job or anything to do so they just kind of all were Fault. like what would make for good television and you're just like oh this is alcohol and violence yeah and it, i was just the guy i was there from like i think my shift was like 4 p.m to 4 a.m every day it was like Oof. it was it was brutal <laughs> yeah I survived it though, so I really. Can't do you go. have to tell the cameraman to stop? Do they shoot everything? And they'll just edit out you coming on on camera to put out fires later, or do you like? All right, cut, cut. I gotta go fix this. Uh, no. What would usually happen is if there was something I had to get cleaned up or something fixed, or uh, unless there was a reason for a producer or something to go in there, they were they were constantly monitoring them from the garage, which was like the setup for the TVs and okay. all that stuff. Um. And then if there was something that needed to get cleaned up afterwards, it was like once they were off to a different part of the house or they were asleep, people would go in and like, it was weird if you, if you felt sort of like a little gnome where you'd like come in at night and put in food and <laughs> yeah, stuff. Right, right. <laughs> and they're, I'm guessing at least in some cases, probably don't know where food comes from in general. Like, like the, oh, food appears. Close the refrigerator for long enough, and it will replenish. You know? I, if you close the refrigerator, fight a, fight one of the other girls, <laughs> and then go to sleep because you will tuck it out. <laughs> I did. Be- then food comes. I did notice uh, as as the arc of any sort of reality show would go, um, they were kind of clueless as to the process at the beginning. But then by the time the show was basically about to wrap up, everyone was like knowledgeable, and they're basically like, "Hey, camera guy, you should want to. You probably want to be over oh, there for God. that shot." And you're just like, oh. "Oh yeah, don't don't interact with them. This is supposed to be like not." <laughs> yeah, that's what. Um, are you a fan of? Have you ever seen the Up Up series, like Seven Up and Seven and Seven and Twenty One? No, I haven't. It was this, uh, I think I've talked about it too much in this podcast, but it's maybe my favorite, if, if it were one movie, it'd be my favorite movie of all time. It was this thing they started doing in maybe like uh, late 50s, early 60s in England, um, where they followed around uh, maybe 20 kids from different walks of life, and they were all seven years old, and it's based on this saying, I forgot who said it, that give me, give me a boy until the age of seven and I will give you the man. As in, like, you're fully defined as a person by the age of seven. Like, that's who... Oh, that's horrifying. I mean, but maybe it's true. I don't know. So they thought out to see, they're like, we're going to check in with these kids. These are the future of England. Um, these will be who's running the country in the year 2000. So let's see what they're like. And this was before cameras were ubiquitous and, like, in our pockets. So, like, you got to see these kids acting like as natural as you can in front of a camera because they aren't used to everyone being in front of cameras. And then every seven years since then, they followed up with those same people. And now they're, um, I think they're going to be 63 in the next installment. Oh, that's crazy. So if you go watch on Netflix, you can watch an entire person's life in the span of like six hours. Oh, it's I definitely have to crazy. check that out. That yeah, stuff does fascinate me, that idea of it's, like... Um, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, and you see like some of them 
Some of their lives have turned out well, some not so some well. Some have been really tragic. Some have been surprisingly good. There is that weird thing. We've talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it on the air before, but I know we've talked about it this a lot. But there is that thing, if you're one of those people, where you sort of have it in the back of your mind that you need to get your shit together every seven yeah. years. Yeah, one of my favorite people in it talks about that, how she's like, I, I wish I could I wish I wish could say no to this, because every seven years it's like this, uh, this like the worst surgery Korean. scar that's being reopened. And, uh, but you know, I can't walk away from it either. And it has, it has been good and bad. And, um, cause like there's one person, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's one person who like seems pretty entitled and you kind of hate her at 21. And then she comes, she g- turns out to be one of the people that like is my, one of my favorite, like there's one of the people that I really want to meet in that movie. Like I want to hug them like this cause you <laughs> see their whole fucking life. It's yeah. like, there's one guy I'm still hoping we'll have as a guest who moved to America and became a uh, physics professor at Wisconsin. Um, I forgot his name, but if you're listening or you know him, that would be my dream guest. Um, Brian May and him would be my two favorite guests. But um, yeah, like they they can't turn it. They can turn it down. One person turned it down after um, he turned after the 21 one, and I think he was like a barrister and he was pretty high class because they tried to find kids from all walks of life. Like some of sure. them were orphans and some of them were on the like um, Oxford Cambridge uh, path and. It sounds like um, a weird, like, seven-year reunion sort of thing. Yeah. Where you have to, like, you're like, oh, I have to lose some weight before this well, thing they, Yeah, they talk around. about that. And like, you, can see, you can see him trying to, like, get, get all spiffed up. But, like, in the first five installments or so, you realize, oh, this is never going to happen again in civilization unless we have a technology-ending disaster and then things come up out of the rubble. Because, like, now everyone's so used to cameras that it would influence how everyone acts, where you feel yeah. like you, you got the last... Mid-20th century was the last time you could sort of get... Uh, uh, as unbiased a documentary as you can mm-hmm. of of kids and adolescents who aren't playing to the camera too much, you know. Well, and even the idea of look at like Grey Gardens is a great example oh of like God. they were like sh- the minute a camera came into her house, she was like, right. "It's finally my chance." Yeah, and yeah, you're yeah. like, they they were even very uh, from what I've heard, they were very specific on like not even the assist the camera assistants would come in it was just the cameraman and it was like the cameraman and like the kind in of the hopes of not affecting how they act well it's like it's i mean with most documentaries you're supposed to keep that number as low as possible so yeah. it's not a crowd of people in which someone's to perform to so it, it i mean it, it's yeah but if you already have those great gardens people that are like the, the world is my stage yeah, yeah it's that that the the youngest one was it's like she i think she was like oh good i thought this time to be famous has passed had passed and now i i have my chance again god have you seen the parody the documentary now yeah yeah the documentary now yeah and it's well and it's like the as i watched it i was just sort of like oh they really paid attention (laughs) there's some details there where you're like it's horrifyingly specific it's it's a great if you guys have ifc go check out documentary now i think it's the first episode i think they're on netflix too documentary the old seasons are on netflix as well it's a hybrid the first episode is a hybrid parody of gray gardens and blair witch project yeah (laughs) it's so perfect hey hey you know you know what has been also contaminated by man over time what is that matt uh and uh, the way we interfere with things um mount rushmore Oh no! This is actually this is actually an older story that someone sent in, but uh, Christine Williams. You mean na- you mean naturally occurring uh, mountain <laughs> feature yeah. Mount Rushmore? Yeah, named after Mountain Rushmore, uh, the four-headed largest man on earth. But um, it's Christine Williams from the U.S. Geological Survey in North Dakota, who apparently listens to our show, sent this in. Uh, past fireworks displays likely caused water contamination at Mount Rushmore. 
that there's a contaminant called perchlorate in groundwater and surface water within Mount Rushmore National Memorializing Agent in fireworks. I'm guessing this story was sent in because we place at the memorial a fear with a function of the human thyroid gland. However, the drinking water at Mount Rushmore is safe. It meets current regulations. But aerial fireworks displays took place at the memorial around 98 to 2009 Independence Days. I wonder why they stopped after yeah, that or before that. Weirdly specific time frame. Um, yeah, so... Uh, apparent, I, I, how many fireworks do you have to send off for it to be detectable in the ground? Yeah, it would seem like you'd have to be doing that every day. Because they've looked for it. It wasn't fertilizers because of the other compounds that, are, that would be there if it were fertilizers. Uh, and it's not from the dynamite that was used to blast the memorial in the 30s, because perchlorate is not a component of dynamite formulations. Hmm. That has uh, me scared for the number of fireworks set off in Los Angeles, like, two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. It was, like we talked about, I think it was a, a different year, right? It seemed like it was more out of control than in past years. I have never. Oh, yeah, it was. Didn't well, it? Or would we, maybe I was just sitting in a different neighborhood than I, I was know in, in my past. neighborhood, every, this, the past four years or so it's they will set fireworks off for like two hours they'll run out of fireworks to set off and then it'll set palm fronds on fire oh, okay <laughs> that's, that's horrifying maybe that's why we couldn't yeah. i couldn't see as i was driving home yeah it was the smokiest fourth yeah. i've ever seen in my life i i've never been in america on the fourth of july before but that was right. i'm glad to re- know that that was just freakishly I, I it was ludicrous it was. i think it was because i figured it was also i was in a neighborhood that was particularly yeah i haven't been on the east side before i think i've always been yeah. Oh yeah, East Side is well. And, uh, I live over in the East Side, um, and that's for weeks after. Like, well, I also live near Dodger Stadium, so like every Friday right, that there's right, a home right, right. game, I just hear all the dogs in my neighborhood lose their mind. Oh, and I'm man. like, oh, this is not fair. Yep. And then everyone's got to have their like drafts of tweets about this is nine eleven for dogs at the ready. Every yeah, year. everyone's got, <laughs> got their, their dog well, and the the those things I don't really I. I don't like fireworks in the idea of, like, it is kind of horrifying to dogs and you can't explain to a dog. Right. It's just fireworks, dude. Come down. Uh, and there's also there's also uh, veterans and stuff who really do not react well and stuff to it. Oh. So I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. You bought all those fireworks? Uh, go set them off somewhere quietly, please. <laughs> <laughs> right. How do you tell someone? Put them under a bunch of blankets. That'll be safe. Well, if only it wasn't in dogs' genes and in their nature to be friendly. There's two different stories that are like a day apart on the BBC News website about dogs' domestication, and I can't work out if it's the same story or two separate stories. Um, Written by the same writer as well. So the first one is, how did dogs become our best friends? New evidence. I'm going to do both together, kind of merge them into one. Interesting. But dogs probably evolved from wolves at a single location around 20,000 to 40,000 years ago. Previously, it had been thought that dogs were tamed from two populations of wolves living thousands of miles apart, but researchers studied DNA from three dogs found at archaeological sites in Germany and Ireland that were between 4,700 and 7,000 years old. And they share ancestry with modern European dogs. By looking at the rates of change to the DNA from the oldest specimen, scientists were able to place the timing of the domestication of dogs to between 20,000 and 40,000 years ago. Um... So Krishna, Krishna uh, Viramar of Stony Brook University in New York is a researcher and said the process of dog domestication began when a population of wolves moved to the outskirts of hunter-gatherer camps to scavenge for leftovers. Those wolves that were tamer and less aggressive would have been more successful at this. While the humans did not initially gain any kind of benefit from this process, over the time they would have developed into some kind of symbiotic relationship with them. So they evolved into the anim- in the dogs we see today. So I guess like the dogs sort of 
makes sense. Like dogs start to help out the humans. They scare away other predators. They become companions. They yeah. fetch stuff. And, and at the same time, we feed them. And that's how like the friendliest and the ones that are most skilled in different ways survive. Yeah, well, do they say what the actual initial gains that humans took away from having dogs as companions was? Or are you just guessing at those Well, things? yeah, it's a, well, I guess, I guess all those sorts of things, like scaring away predators and just maybe just being friendly and fun to have around. And also sense, just like, helping to hunt, uh, helping with hunts and that kind of thing. Yeah. Scientists believe, or even what, acting as guards, acting as guard dogs is probably yeah. a thing. But scientists... The story of how dogs came to be tamed from wolves is complex and hotly debated. Scientists believe they started moving around the world, perhaps with their human companions, around 20,000 years ago. And by 7,000 years ago, they were pretty much everywhere, although they were not the kind of dogs we would consider as pets. Um, they were likely to have resembled dogs, the dogs today we call village dogs, which are free-breeding, that don't live in specific people's houses and have a similar look to them across the world. I guess there is a similar look to sort of was, stray dogs around the world. Yeah, you don't really see a lot of like stray like you don't um, see like labradoodles just yeah, sort of yeah, foraging. If yeah. you're cast, if you're casting a dog and you're like, it's a mutt, and you're like, okay, poodles are out. Yeah, <laughs> like you're just well, old English sheep dogs. Yeah. Well, and then I'll, even the idea of like, uh, I just I imagine a very grumpy old man being like all by himself and this like one dog coming up just kind of hanging out long enough where he's like, ah, we're pals. Like, yeah, it's just yeah. kind of feels like that way where it's like. The animals didn't bite them, so they're like, ah, they're cool, let them stay around. Yeah. And then they just, like... Whereas suddenly... the ones that are bitey, you're like, get the fuck away from me, I'm not yeah. feeding you. Well, and then, like, maybe there's there's ones that aren't aggressive that are like, hey, cool it, like, and they kind of keep the other ones away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but... I wonder what the... I mean, I guess I could just Google this, but, like, does our history with cats date back to way before I'm this? I'm not sure. Do Why don't you look like that up while I, while I carry on with the story? <sighs> we, are, so... we are wandering into some very dangerous territory. <laughs> Well, I just wondered what the first time any human ancestors of ours had a, a non-work-based relationship with a different species, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, that's a very I good question. No, let me uh, see. I think what? cats became domesticated far more recently. I'm sure, I'm sure oh. the internet will have one definitive answer. Right. <laughs> well, what was the date for cats you're finding, Matt? Um, I just looked up cat on Wikipedia, and that was that's too long. Of an old all domestic cats are descendants. My of, computer just broke. <laughs> so, all, according to a 2017 study, all domestic cats are descendants of those first domesticated by farmers in the Near East around 9,000 years ago. That's Why are they still jerks? So, around instances of domestication as early as 9,500 years. Ago. Yeah, so it's around like at the top end, 10,000 years, uh, whereas. Dogs are at least twice as old as that in their domestication. The dogs were later bred for their skills as hunters, herders, or gun dogs, eventually creating hundreds of modern breeds. And the research published in Nature Communications suggests even the dog breeds and village dogs found in the Americas and Pacific Islands are almost completely derived from recent European dog stock, probably due to prolific dog breeding in Victorian times. That's really recent. Mm, yeah. Victorian times is like within 100, 150 years. Yeah, it doesn't take that long, I guess. I mean, dog, you know. Yeah. I know the dogs I had growing up were like English dogs. They're like flat-coated retrievers. And it was a very much a breeding thing where they were like, they were very specific about the breeds. There's like a whole history and a whole family tree, which there's a lot of circles in that whole tree. Uh, but it was, they're very, like, that was a whole thing where it's, I mean, look how many hunting dogs and stuff came out of, of yeah, yeah. Yeah. Victorian era stuff. So it says, in this regard, it appears our 7,000-year Neolithic old dog from Europe is virtually an ancestor to most modern breed dogs found throughout the world. The ancestral relations 
ship may even stretch back to the oldest dog fossil we know of, which is approximately 14,000 years old from Germany. Previous evidence suggests that the first domestic dogs appeared on opposite sides of the Eurasian continent more than 12,000 years ago. Later, the eastern dogs moved with migrating humans and bred with those from the west, according to that theory. But now that theory looks like it's been overtaken by the new one. Mm. And then the second dog breeding story... I think, I think our, our friend Helen Briggs over at BBC News had, uh, had some kind of quota she had to meet by... You're like a lot of dogs. <laughs> a lot of dogs. Uh, but being friendly is in dogs' natures, uh, nature... Why did we not have this story, by the way, when Renee was on know, three weeks ago? <laughs> Helen, why couldn't you have written this sooner? Ren- uh, check out the Can I Pet Your Dog podcast that Renee co-hosts. Yes, do that. But being friendly is in dog's nature and could be key to how they came to share our lives. Dog, uh, Say US scientists, dogs evolved from wolves 10,000 years ago. I'm, I'm going to skip over some of this article, which is redundant given what we just read out. But during this time, certain genes that make dogs particularly gregarious have been selected for, according to research. This is some of the answer to the question you asked before, Jim. Our finding of genetic variation in both dogs and wolves provides a possible insight into animal personality and may even suggest similar genes may have roles in other domestic species, maybe even cats, Hmm. says Bridget von Holt of Princeton. The researchers studied the behavior of domestic dogs and gray wolves living in captivity. They carried out a number of tests on the animal's skills at problem-solving and sociability. Those showed, these showed that wolves were as good as, as good as dogs at solving problems, such as retrieving pieces of sausage from a plastic lunchbox. How'd they do with Sudoku? Uh, I, similar as well. <laughs> similar Both did as well. Both. Actually, I think wolves did a bit better at those because Sudoku's a less sociable activity. Right, right. Uh, dogs, however, were much more friendly. They spent more time greeting human strangers and gazing at them, while wolves were somewhat aloof. DNA tests found a link between certain genetic changes and behaviors such as attentiveness to strangers or picking up on social cues. Wait, can I posit a theory here? Yeah. Are these wolves geeky because they had older wolf dads? (laughs) Is this possible? That's a callback to an earlier episode. It is. Similar changes in humans are associated with a rare genetic syndrome where people are highly sociable. Oh, so if you have this syndrome, you're very sociable. How odd. Um... Dr. Elaine... Well, syndrome doesn't imply anything bad. Huh. That's true. You ever Google but, the word syndrome? Uh, I have yeah, not. Yeah, that Incredibles character comes up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was wondering what it meant. Because I think I, when someone was talking about um, Down syndrome and, and like people saying it in a pejorative way, and I was like, well, syndrome implies bad, doesn't it? Then I Googled it. I was like, no, syndrome is just... A, a collection of behaviors or a collection of it traits? It means running with. Yeah. yeah, it's a collection. Yeah, yeah. Did you just Google it also? Or you no, just, I just... Yeah. yeah, it just means... Just really good at these it, things. <laughs> I guess drome would be running, like a hippodrome is like a horse racing arena. Yep. So yeah, running with, so like just things that, it's a collection of traits or symptoms or whatever, but it doesn't imply good or bad, it's just a collection of yeah. things. Dr. Elaine Ostrander of the National Institutes of Health, who was not connected with the study, says the information will be useful in studying human disease. The exciting observation highlights the utility of the dog as a genetic system in informative for studies of human disease as it shows how minor variants in critical genes in dogs result in major syndromic effects in humans. Um, so, uh, and the finding of these genetic changes linked to sociability in dogs shows how their friendly behavior might have evolved. This could easily play into the story of how these wolves li- leave descendants that are also friendlier than others, setting the path for domestication. Do you have a dog, Jim? 
Uh, not here. I would love to have a dog. I just like, not here in the room. Uh, no, I mean like in Los Angeles. <laughs> I just I was wondering if you were hiding a dog as uh, we were recording because <laughs> yeah. we have a policy. If you bring a dog, you yeah, have to it's tell a, us. it's a it's my service dog. I get anxiety and it calms me down. Uh, no, I I would love to have a dog. I just think um, for myself, I don't live the life that I would. It would be. I really only want a dog for about half an hour a day, and that's not really fair to a dog. Uh, yeah. Do they have any of those cafes in L.A.? Oh yeah, the dog. Like, we dog hire a dog cafes. for an afternoon. My uh, my downstairs neighbors uh, actually have cats, and they'll be outside. And like when all like one's really friendly. His name's Bowie, or it's Bowie, and like it's like it, it'll just like be like, hi, and like one. I'm like you're like a dog, and I'll like <laughs> hang out with it for like ten minutes, and then go to work. Nice. <laughs> it solves that problem for a while. <laughs> yeah, I've got a I have a friend a friend who has an awesome poodle Bichon mix that I've been dog sitting on occasion when she's at work. Um, that's the perfect amount of time. Yeah. yeah. Just give me in a LA, six hour dog and uh, You can, uh, a real easy way is to be like, hey, you want to go hiking to someone who has a dog and they just bring the dog with them? Yeah. It's kind of great. That's good too. Yeah. I did get a listener who wrote in and told me about uh, different like dog fostering services I should look yeah. into. And I've just been too busy recently. But thank you for sending that listener. I, I, Brian, I, Brian Cook's always trying to fo- like voice dogs off from people. And I think everyone. Brian. That sounds like he's running a scam. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he hey, take this dog. dog. I love that about Brian because he opens his trench coat and there's his dogs. <laughs> he's the most curmudgeonly guy. I know. A great guy, but like, you know, his, his persona. He's a misanthrope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's a misanthrope, but uh, he's a Phil. Okay, if you're a misanthrope, but a Phil Kane of. Uh, Hating people love dogs. He's a dogs. philanthropic Kane. Sure, he loves, he, loves, he loves dogs. Hates people, loves dogs. Yeah. yeah, I love that about him. Yeah. That's kind of the right way to do it, though. Like, how many dogs have you met that are absolute garbage versus how many human oh. absolute garbage people have you met? I, well, I mean, it depends on whether we're limiting our search for both the humans and the dogs to Los Angeles. If we're going worldwide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a target-rich environment. I would say I've met more dog assholes and more people assholes in Los yeah. Angeles than yeah, anywhere else that I've met. You know what? If you, if you meet an asshole dog, you can usually be like, oh, I think I can pretty much <laughs> yeah. guess what your owner's like. Let me see who owns the purse you're currently residing in. Yeah, yeah that's going to be a clue. I, I've definitely been bitten by more dogs than humans. <laughs> I don't know if my you're number, into different stuff. My number than might I am. be one to one. Yeah, I think uh, I think mine's pretty even. <laughs> like, uh, I'm not actually, sure. If I've ever, maybe I've never been. Actually, if you count the age of a dog. child, uh, like uh, the age of the human. Actually, no, no. I'm I'm going to retract that. I've been bitten yeah. by more humans than dogs. Yep, that's what I thought. <laughs> that's what I thought you were going to say. Um, I've never been bitten by a dog that meant. Malice. I, I've never had a dog bite that broke skin. Have you had a dog bite that actually was like, fuck you, I'm trying to hurt you? No, I I mean, I've never, I've I've been around very aggressive dogs, but it's yeah. like I've never gotten to, they've, they've never been, I've had them like come at me in that way where you're like, all right, fine, this is your area. Like, oh, I'll walk over yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> like, I only had, I did have one time at the beach in Oregon, and of course Oregon has no laws about dogs on beaches, so there's tons of dogs on all the beaches, which is great. For most cases, but sometimes yeah. you got an asshole dog, yeah. and I want to have a day at the beach, and I want to have to worry about my stuff all the time, and I want to have some food in my bag. Sometimes a dog is like a drunk guy, where you're like, yeah. I don't know what he's going to do, yeah. but I'm not going to hang out and wait to see what's going to happen. Right, right. So one day at the beach, I was throwing a frisbee with my friend, and we just wanted to throw a fucking frisbee. It's a day at the beach, you know, and this dog decided the frisbee is for him, and I was like, no, I'm not going to stop doing this thing I wanted to do yeah. because there's a dog here. So we just made it our mission to throw it quickly as soon as it got to any of us. So did never... the owner, like, did the owner... Who knows what the step... fucking owner... It was, it's Oregon, the most entitled dog owners in the world. The owner yeah, is probably, that's... like, miles away hiking in the mountains or something. That is the problem with some owners of pets is, yeah. like, they get angry at you and you're like, hi, no, you're in charge of that thing. 
Get it out of here. Yeah. Hey, yeah. hey you know what is... Wait, I was getting to one thing. So I have been bitten by a dog, but okay. only because he was going for my Frisbee, and I refused to stop playing Frisbee for this dog. You sacrificed yourself for a Frisbee? I didn't know I was going to be sacrificed. Cool. We, we were throwing it fast enough. I, I, he was not getting to either of us in time before we'd, we'd throw it again, but eventually he got to me and then lunged for the Frisbee and bit my thumb. And I was like, you motherfucker. That's like when you flip a, bo- a glass bottle up in the air, and you're just like, no, it's going to be fine. It's eventually going <laughs> to yeah. go south. Yeah. Like, it's going to... Yeah. That's true. You're like you were just you were tempting fate. I just didn't want to change my activity that for that day because someone else decided to be a shitty owner to their pet. I totally understand um, that impulse. Yeah. Anyway, Matt, you were saying. Uh, yes. I was gonna say, hey, you know what is in a dog's DNA? What is uh, that? And and every DNA. Um. Whole lot of nothing. Oh. To a large extent, at least seventy-five percent of our DNA really is useless junk after all. What? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, the code that makes us is at least 75% rubbish, according to a study that suggests most of our DNA is junk. After, So after 20 years of biologists arguing that most of the human genome must have some kind of function, the study calculated, in fact, the vast majority of our DNA has to be useless. It came to this conclusion by calculating that because of the way evolution works, we'd each have to have a million children, and almost all of them would need to die if most of our DNA had a purpose. But wait, we, wait, wait. All, and most of them would need to die. Yeah, I, I hope the hope the study goes into this more deeply. Okay. But we ch- just have a few children on average, and our genetic health is mostly fine. The study therefore concludes that most of our DNA really must be junk, a suggestion that contradicts controversial claims to the contrary. From Contra- a group, that's a lot of cussing. That's a lot of that was a gar- that was a tricky sentence to get through from a group of prominent genomics researchers in 2012. When researchers first worked out how DNA encodes the instructions for making proteins in the 50s, national proteins, just about 1% in the case, so it doesn't roll, such as regulating the activity of the protein coding genes. Um, but around 90% of our genome is still junk DNA. So like, they, so they're like, DNA tell the DNA tells the human that tells whatever animal when it's been created, like to make this protein here mm-hmm. and make this protein here and do this in this order. Um, but the thought was. A lot of the stuff that isn't specific instructions is also still part of this sort of computer code that makes stuff work, or is so it's like the packing peanuts of like DNA where it's around, so the the stuff that actually does stuff doesn't break. Like it's yeah, kind of or, or like yeah, or like the sort of extra bits of the recipe that are like yeah, these are the ingredients, but also this is where they go, and this is when to stop, and this is how long to do it for, and that. Yeah. Sort of. That's a very hand wavy way of describing it. I didn't know that but, this that this became an issue for creationists, though. Oh, I, I just saw this in the next paragraph. It says that uh, yeah, in the two thousands, there were a bunch of studies that reported that junk DNA was not junk, based on demonstrating some tiny bits of non coding DNA having some use. And those claims proved popular with creationists who were struggling to explain why an intelligently designed genome would consist mostly of rubbish. So they spent like four hundred million dollars. To try to show that there was a purpose to this eighty percent of DNA that might not have a purpose, just to jibe with it's a their, lot of work. Yeah, they they have they're the more science that comes out, the busier those people end up being. Um, yeah, the, so that was the grandest claim came in twenty twelve when this consortium of genomics researchers called Encode declared that I don't 80%, think I, sorry they, they weren't entirely they were, they weren't creationists. Yeah. I'm saying, but like yeah, in that same t- uh, that was the biggest claim that this junk DNA is not junk. So Gra- this uh, Dan Grau of the University of Houston was one of the researchers who didn't believe Encode's claim. The heart of the issue is how do you define functional? Encode defined DNA as such if it showed any biochemical activity, for instance, if it was copied into RNA. 
But Grau doesn't think a bit of activity like this is enough to prove DNA has a meaningful use. Instead, he argues that a sequence can only be described as functional if it has evolved to do something useful, and if a mutation disrupting it would have a harmful effect. Mutations to DNA happen at random for several reasons, uh, such as UV radiation or mistakes made when DNA replicates during cell division. These mutations change one base of DNA into another, so uh, for example, an A becomes a T. And when they occur in a gene, they're more likely to be harmful than beneficial. When we reproduce, our children inherit a shuffled bag of mutations, and those with a collection of particularly bad ones are more likely to die before having children of their own. That's how evolution stops bad mutations building up to dangerously high levels in a species. Following Grau's logic, if most of our DNA is functional, then we would accumulate a large proportion of harmful mutations in important sequences. But if most of our DNA is junk, the majority of our mutations would have no effect. Uh, That makes more sense. Oh, so that's interesting. So Grau's team have now calculated how many children a couple would need to conceive so evolution could weed out enough bad mutations from our genomes as fast as they arise. If the entire genome was functional, couples would need to have around 100 million children and almost all of them would have to die. Even if just a quarter of the genome is functional, each couple would have to have nearly four children on average with only two surviving to adulthood to to prevent harmful mutations building up to dangerous levels. Those numbers are surprising how much it changes. From, yeah, from like 100 to... To a quarter is suddenly just four. 100 million children down to four. Yeah. Take into account... I feel es- like four would be easier to talk your wife into. Yeah. Because <laughs> then 100 million, like, it's not even about like bed space as much as like backyard grave space. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> you're like, hey... You're how, decorating how, the... How, how, old do, how big do we have to let these get before they die? Like, we just... <laughs> Uh, take into account estimates of the mutation rate and average prehistoric reproduction rate, Grau's team calculated that only around 8 to 14% of our DNA is likely to have a function. Mm. Um, this ties in nicely with a 2014 study that compares our genome with other species and concludes that around 8% of it is functional. So the fundings are supportive of another, says one of the authors of the 2014 study, Chris Ponting from Edinburgh University. We are walking around with a genome where only one in ten bases actually matters. We don't know how much of our DNA has non-sequence-related functions, says Ryan Gregory of University of Guelph in Canada. Some, research, some regions of DNA are useful without having an important sequence, so mutations in these areas probably don't matter. But even taking this into account, most DNA is probably junk, he says. Where in what what part of it does the X Men style like telekinesis, levitation, um, magnetic powers? Is that in the eighty five percent or in the fifteen? I don't know. It doesn't say in this study, okay. but I'm hoping that'll be that'll be come up within a future study. Yeah. So we only use eight percent of our DNA, and we only use like ten percent of our brain. That we're like not the truth. Right, well, I'm just saying we're like the iceberg of existence. Like, we're yeah. just like there's only that top part we can see. That ten percent brain thing has been. Pretty pretty much conclusively debunked, right? There's oh yeah, it's it's it doesn't even need debunking. It's nonsense from the beginning. Like there's no there's no bit of your brain that you can put you can put a stick into without it making you go weird. <laughs> like, well, no, there are some. Pretty... I mean, go weird. I mean, you can you can live with a stick in a lot of parts of your brain. Obviously, people have had surgery. You can live, but something will be different. Right. Right. Um. So the challenge, says Gregory, for those who think most non-coding DNA is vital, uh, is vital to explain why an onion needs five times as much of it as we do. I didn't know that. Mm. I would like to think mo- most knowledge of bio- 
Most knowledgeable biologists who properly appreciate evolutionary theory and genomic diversity are well aware of the many problems with ENCODE's claim. But most people, and even some scientists, are uncomfortable with the idea that most of their DNA is junk. Hey, guess what happened, everyone? You might notice a weird shift in tone and or sentence structure. Uh... Andy, do you want to explain what yeah, happened? Yeah, 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 I might not have uh, cleared off enough space on the SD card before we started recording. There might be 40-odd uh, minutes of us talking that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it might be my fault. Uh, and the backup recording wasn't running. Nope. I've never I done like, podcast never rehearsals before. I've the backup recording before, so I, uh, we were late in getting started, and I was like, we don't need to have the backup one running. So the first time did. in ages that we now have a backup running, we also... Ah, fuck it. Filled up the card. All right. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm, I, we're going to run through some of the stories that you've missed out on us riffing on. Oh, there uh, were some good riffs. Oh, good riffs. we what went if we quickly really... synopsize some of those riffs. <laughs> what if we go to some of yeah, the hot? I'm going to finish off this onion story because at least we we do have this one in full. But the last little bit um, says uh, Ponting says most, but most people and even some scientists are uncomfortable with the idea that most of their DNA is junk. And even worse for such people, other genomic studies are now revealing that we all carry plenty of mutations that affect both our coding DNA and non-coding DNA, while evolution weeds out some of the worst ones that doesn't stop plenty of mutations collecting in our genome. Uh, so we're walking around with, as individuals, with relatively large numbers of our genes not working properly, which some people find a shocking idea. So there we go, that's the end of that story. I can tell you from the show notes, because I keep track of the stuff we're talking about so that we can then add it to the show notes. What if we try to organically get back into every topic we covered? Okay, and we were talk talking about the DNA we don't need. We were talking about the 85% of the brain, or the, the misnomer about the 10% of your brain thing. We were talking about... Uh, you started, for some reason, talking about the spy technique of... Of Pushing pressing a, a key, key against the flesh of your palm, so yep. you can make it, uh, so you could duplicate a key secretly at a party or something. If you were a childhood, and then you were like, well, well, then you could take a picture of the imprint in your hand. I was like, well, then just take a picture of the key. They'll see you taking the picture. Of good the key. times, yeah. so, good yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say the positive things that I did, like <laughs> like knocking someone down, adding something. I'm gonna. Yeah. Uh, and then I found out that gallium. I didn't know this. I didn't know that gallium's melting point is. A bit above room temperature, but a bit below body temperature, so you can melt gallium in the palm of your hand. Hence the tons of gallium videos you can find on YouTube. That then, looks like Terminator 2. Right. Yeah. Then I googled gallium, because I was like, how much does it cost to get some of this gallium? Not that much. 30 bucks for 100 grams. In the course compared of Googling Compared to the books that, about it. Compared to the books about <laughs> no it. In money. the course of Googling it, I found a, an ebook about gallium that costs $4,500. And then we tried to figure out why an ebook would cost $4,500. Which uh, led to both a discussion of, we talked about this on a show three years ago, and we'll link to it in the show note, the weird story of a book that appeared on Amazon uh, a scientific book about flies and their genetics that was priced at $23 million because, because of... two different bots went amok. And went... Did, that, did that $23 million figure then spur me to tell you the thing you hadn't heard about our mutual friend jo Josh Androsky, perhaps? The comedian Josh Androsky has just won a lot of money on a slot machine in Vegas. He put $20 into a Big Bang theory slot machine ironically and won 1.2 million dollars this is a comedian friend of ours who has also gone on the prices right did uh, we mention that earlier in this we might have mentioned that originally earlier oh, and then it we? circled okay. back to i it. don't know we also started talking quite a lot about the rules of brewster's millions yeah and i found wow. out that a surprising number of this it was originally a a book at the turn of the century and has spawned 
remarkable number of movies. I think you said a dozen, and some of those are Bollywood movies. Yeah, there's a couple of Bollywood movies, but like the first film adaptation was by DeMille in something like 1912. And Brewster's Hundreds. Yeah. And it has. It was a joke that did or did not land. (laughs) And Um, it has gone on ever since. Brewster's Hey Penny. Uh, (laughs) uh, And then we did a story about the shape of eggs. Turns out the shape of an egg is determined by the uh, the amount of time that the bird species spends flying. Is that a pretty good summary? Yeah, listener Andrew. Uh, I just want to credit everyone now. Andrew McKay sent that in. Thank we you. also credited all of our donors who'd gone to probablyscience.com, our spare, Squarespace powered website, and clicked the donation button. I'm going to thank all of them again because they nice deserve to be thoroughly thanked. Sorry, you already got you got a more thorough thanking earlier on, David Valentine and Andy Cotton for your one-off donations, and also for recurring donations from John Clarici, Caroline Lako, Mark Williams, Paul Freeland, Destruction Lane, David Worth, Peter Long, James Cox, and a super generous word. Thank you so much every month donation from Linda Moulton. Uh, thank you so, so much, and thank you everyone who plugs our show on the internet, writes nice things about us on iTunes, and gives us good ratings. Yeah, is it possible that the TLDR version of the podcast is better? Because we just gave you the meat of that egg story very quickly. Well, yeah. the way the, the egg story basically <laughs> amounted to um, the it, the shape of eggs, bird eggs. Some of them are more pointed at the end. Some of them more sort of potato shaped. Some of them are rounder. Some of them are really teardropped. And it's dictated more by the physiology of the bird, and that's related to how much of a flyer it is, how fast and powerful it is as a flyer. I didn't realize that bird eggs, if you get rid of the shell, underneath the membrane is also egg-shaped. And that's the thing that really dictates the shape of it, and that's dictated by the shape of the internal organs of the bird, and the internal organs of the bird are dictated by its musculature, which is related to how much it flies. And that was the discovery of this team of scientists. Uh, and then I was surprised that if you go to ostrich land by Solvang, you can handle a giant ostrich egg and it weighs like seven pounds and the shell is super thick enough that you can't even break it without a tool. You need like a hard implement to do it. And then we talked about how in America, eggs have to be refrigerated, but in Europe they don't. And that's because American eggs are washed, whereas uh, Europeans vaccinate the hens against salmonella. And that's actually meant to be more effective uh, at preventing salmonella, whereas the American eggs get washed, but that washes away the protective coating that surrounds the eggs and makes them more prone to infection. So they have to be kept in the fridge. And I made a point of reminding everyone that uh, that birds uh, poop and put eggs out of the same hole. It's weird. It's called a vent or cloaca, and that's why they're dirty. So you Brits have shit-covered eggs, and we have ones that you have to refrigerate. I'll take I'll take the American system. But America has had more salmonella eggs than okay, Europe. Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, is that about it? Did we actually sum up half an hour? I, I think you guys did a pretty... Sus- I, th- minus I feel like joke. you've moved the detritus of our conversation yeah. and just got... Like, we went a little long on the Brewster's Millions. Well, we talked fun. about Brewster's Millions for a long time. We went into yeah. detail on the rules of Brewster's Millions. Yeah. We explained exactly what it was to our younger listeners who may not even be aware that Richard Pryor existed, let alone... <laughs> let alone did bad movies. Let alone uh, did movies bad and good. I mean, quickly, someone gets willed a bunch of money, but he'll get even more money if he spends a huge sum of money in a certain amount of time. But after that, he can't have anything to show for that money. So he has to find some, in the theory that he'll learn to hate spending money, and then he won't, he'll appreciate it or something. It's a convoluted movie. Um, and then we talked about Superman 2 and 3, and I should go revisit those <laughs> yeah, to see if go 2 is as good and 3 is as bad as I remember. Yeah. Um, I think and then we asked, <laughs> so we if, asked you're gonna, if you're going to watch Superman 2, watch the Richard Donner cut. 
Oh, okay. A couple years, less, maybe like ten zany? years ago. He, no, he like kind of. It was he took the original, um, what he was gonna do with it, and kind of cobbled together a version with the stuff that Richard Lester also cut and everything. Oh, so okay. it's it it uh, it's neither one. I mean, Superman two is a little campy. Superman the Richard Donner cuts better, but it also feels incomplete. So there's no okay. Yeah, check those out. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, Jim. Yes. Where, once again, can our listeners find out all about you and what you do? Oh, it's very easy. Uh, there's only really one or two places to find me on the, the internet. Uh, Twitter is Jim Hegarty, uh, J-I-M-H-E-G-A-R-T-Y. And then I think I also have an Instagram of the same name. Uh, there's no Facebook to find me because I deleted it. Uh, and um, other than that, that's about it. Um, you can find us at Probably Science. Uh, probablyscience.com Facebook slash probablyscience mm-hmm. you can find us individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen you can also go to Andy T. Wood's SoundCloud page if you want to listen to the Twinsies podcast the little trial preview episodes have a little listen yeah. see what you think maybe send in maybe email Andy with things that you enjoyed about it or things you'd like sure. to see as recurring segments Yeah, that's the podcast for regulars we'll know that's the podcast that Andy and frequent friend of the show TJ Chambers have done about twin movies such as yep. Armageddon and Deep Impact Yep, and each we'll episode that, is a different pairing of similar movies we'll have that up in iTunes as soon as we get some artwork and some other stuff are you going to do so. Dante's Peak and Volcano oh we've got a list we've, we've got, got a, whole a list. Uh, 40 strong yeah but um, the one we just did with Ants and a Bug's Life was super fun because there yeah. was some real animosity I don't know if you've heard the story oh yeah no movie. there's a it's based on like uh, what it's like Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberger yeah. or Katzenberg yeah, was they, like they, they seem to be like some are genuine coincidences some are like movies that were made different, made separately but at the last minute the marketing department kind of went oh these are similar enough that we can piggyback off the other one's success yeah, and just yeah. tweak a few things it's like we get their free marketing dollars that also kind yeah, of which is kind of what happened with Gremlins and Ghoulies which is the other episode right yeah, yeah sort of I mean that they, one they just changed the name before they went to theaters with it and changed some of the marketing that but, may be related to that because it was going to be called Ansem, it was going to be called Beasties right but then Ants and Bugs Life is very much oh, like yeah. a direct <laughs> Like yeah, they hundred percent knew what the other one was doing yeah. and were very much the, the fledgling DreamWorks was started by Katzenberg, Spielberg, and Geffen partly because Katzenberg had been fucked over by Disney. Wait, you mean there's promised... spite projects in Hollywood? <laughs> what? Yeah. It's a great. It's it's. I mean, it's a great episode. My podcast is great. No, it's an interesting story. Hopefully, we do sure. it justice. Um, but yeah, hit me up at Andy T Wood on Twitter or look it up on SoundCloud, and I'll send a link if you can't find it. And also. Give the Jim Jeffrey show a watch and spread the word about that yes. if you enjoy it because the more people watch that, the more chance I have of having nicely paid writing work leading into the new year. So thanks. Yes. It's been enjoyable. Uh yeah, that's about everything. Jim, thank you very much for joining. Thank Listeners, you for having me. I'm sorry about the missing twenty minutes. That's all on me. Listen, I've already got Twitter mad at me because I insulted Lana Del Rey. I'll take this. I can take all you can give me. Fucking Hate on me, Twitter. Go for it. Bye. Bye. (laughs)